throughout time, it's not the people that have just done the same thing and who just fall into line that have made changes. It's mm-hmm. the people with differences. It's the people that looked at things differently. It was, the, it was the person that was too loud. It was the person that couldn't stop moving and had to kind of, you know, constantly be balancing themselves. Um, you know, it was, it was those people that that ended up making the changes. And so I think that if we as teachers and as parents, if we allow for that environment to really bloom, we'll, we will naturally create those spaces then. We will naturally create children who feel more confident in themselves, who are more accepting of others. Hello, and welcome to NCAGT's podcast, They'll Be Fine. I am one of your hosts, Katherine Caldwell, and today you are in for a treat because joining us today is... Alexia Rose. Hello, I am also an educator looking to help support gifted learners in any way that I can because time and time again, we hear they'll be fine, they're smart, they're already ahead of the game when people refer to gifted learners. Because of this sad misconception, too many students fail to reach their potential because they do not receive appropriately challenging curriculum services. Our nation's education policies narrowly focus on the achievement gap for struggling learners, which is extremely problematic for the widening excellence gap faced by high ability students. Most regular classroom teachers do not receive adequate training to recognize and address the needs of high ability learners. This is even more pronounced for children of color, English language learners, and children from low-income backgrounds. In addition, these teachers are under a prohibitive amount of pressure to close the achievement gap of their struggling students. While this is an important measure, it shouldn't be at the expense of our gifted and talented students. Here at NCAGT, we believe that it's up to us as parents, educators, and stakeholders to provide the gifted community the support that they rightfully deserve. Listen to They'll Be Fine to learn more about what you can do to ensure that your gifted and talented scholars are provided the resources they need to thrive. We are here because the saying they'll be fine just isn't good enough. On today's episode, we welcome Katie Davis. Katie Davis is a speech-language pathologist, mother of two neurodivergent children, a homeschool teacher, military spouse, and doctoral student at Bridges Graduate School for Cognitive Diversity. She is passionate about mental health, twice exceptional strengths and differences in learning and autism acceptance. On today's episode, we talk a lot about what it means to have autism and how to support those learners in your lives. So, Katie, we're checking out your bio, and wow, you're a busy bee. So, you (laughs) are a speech-language pathologist, mother of two neurodivergent children, homeschooler, military spouse, and doctoral student. What does a day in life look like? (laughs) I think that sums it up right there. (laughs) No, so uh, it's a busy day. There's oftentimes where I get to the end of the day, and kind of try to reflect. And I think, I don't think I sat down and had a moment to myself throughout the whole day. Yeah, it's my day starts at 5.15 and 
that's when I get two hours of doctoral work in. And then it's kind of hitting the ground running from there. You know, the kids get up and we do an eclectic style of homeschooling that allows us to have a lot of flexibility as far as what we do on a day-to-day basis. But we do typically do math every day through Beast Academy. The kids have really enjoyed that program. I have one son with Discalculate and the Beast Academy has really allowed him a different way of looking at math and he feels a lot more supported um, versus the kind of rote learning or memorization of math facts. So that's been really beneficial for him. And then my daughter is particularly gifted at math and so she's able to excel at her own pace and that really works out well for our family. But yeah, and then we do some different science programs depending upon what we're feeling like. And so, yeah, but most of we've got a good chunk of our morning, about three hours of our morning spent doing different learning tasks and then usually take a short break where I try to run. <laughs> Although with this heat, you just never know. And then get back to it for a couple more hours. We're usually done by about three o'clock in the afternoon. We like to try to get in some creative time and both kids are really uh, invested in arts and crafts. And we always try to have something that we can do to top off our day there before I go back to doing a little bit more schoolwork and then on into the evening where more reading can occur. So yeah, it's a pretty, pretty busy day, pretty involved day. And all of that with moving every one to two years, which is what we've averaged for the last 12 years. Overland. So um, we just we just moved to North Carolina this last summer from Okinawa, Japan. So that was a big transition. And homeschooling in particular really allows us to create some homeostasis wherever we go. That really has worked out and benefited, I think, not only just the kid, myself, and my husband too, because he can, whatever, wherever the military takes him, he's, he's able to stay in that and then come home and be fully invested in, in being at home with us and the children, which is really important. But yes, you have busy days. <laughs> wow. It's such a bold day. Yes. <laughs> and Katie, I'm like so curious because my husband is also in the military. And so I'm just so curious. And it was like, I'm going to ask if we have time, but about what have you noticed as far as getting your child services wherever you move you don't need to do because they're homeschooled yeah that is a really good question it's actually a big part of what i'm trying to do in my doctoral research actually i'm coming up on my finishing up my second year so starting that whole dissertation decision process so my son who is 10 he was diagnosed at age five diagnosed autistic at age five prior to having children i worked as an slp in the schools and i worked with primarily autistic children and so i had a lot of familiarity with that and i i was pretty aware of what the diagnosis was going to be the reason it ended up being as late as it was was primarily because of the consistent moving And we ended up having to pay for him to be diagnosed and tested privately. Like we weren't able to get in because we were in Kentucky at that time. And so we weren't able to find anywhere that would accept TRICARE. And so um, we ended up paying a pocket for his for his evaluation. And so my daughter, we were from Kentucky to Oklahoma for a year while my husband was deployed to Iraq for an entire year. And that was when I started seeing signs in my daughter as well. She presents very, is very much a typical girl on the spectrum. 
And and I can go into that a little bit later. Just kind of some of those things that you can pick up, those differences based on how we socialize our boys and how we socialize girls. And so I noticed those, picked up on them pretty early. If she's seven going on eight, and we still haven't been able to officially have her evaluated because there were no, was no, obviously COVID shut everything down in Oklahoma. So we weren't having, able to have, be evaluated there. Then we moved to Okinawa, which initially actually, because of my son's diagnosis, even though he had completed occupational therapy and he wasn't receiving any other services and didn't need any services because I was homeschooling and offering him full support, the Okinawa at one point wasn't going to allow us to come over and live there because they didn't have any ability to provide services for him. Now, I we eventually got to the point where my husband was there for three months and he was the commander there. And so we couldn't like change. <laughs> there was no way to change where we we're going to live. And we spent almost three months apart trying to fight that system to get us over to Okinawa. Eventually we were successful and had a lovely time and fantastic time there. But yeah, it's it has been a struggle. My daughter, like I said, she's going on eight years old and she's still we're still working on getting her into a place to be officially evaluated. And so that certainly influences the reasons why I've chosen to continue homeschooling is I she I don't think that she necessarily needs any specific services. Like we personally, I don't do ABA therapy, so I wouldn't be interested in anything like that, which would be the main recommendation. And we do part of our programming here at home is we do a large chunk of talking about anxiety and we talk about how to, um, you know, what our own thoughts mean, what other people, other people's thoughts mean, which would be, which is a lot of where she struggles is that understanding that people think differently than you, <laughs> that they have their own thoughts and they're not going to be the same as yours. And I feel like we can get by without those services, but there's so many families that don't have that ability. And I think that's absolutely something that is a sh absolute shame and we need to t be really paying attention to I, I started working as an SLP out in Tacoma Washington which had there's a major base out there joint base Lewis McCord and so we get a lot of military families and I saw the impact that it had on those kids that came in and out particularly with IEPs and missing services and the missed amount of time and I'm I'm not necessarily I've had my own obviously personal experiences with it, but I've also seen the struggles that other families go with. And, it, and when you, especially if you've got like a dual working family or children that you're dealing with multiple disability learning differences, it's really hard as a parent, I think, to advocate for your child completely at times. So there's a lot of barriers to accessing the supports that these kids need in education and moving constantly. Yeah. I had a few things come to mind. One is I feel like if this is all of the struggles that you've had with just advocating for your kid, what you want for your kid. Though I feel like with being a, a speech pathologist, I feel like you, I don't know, like know what's out there for your child, where I feel like so many parents maybe don't even know what services are available or out there as options. Absolutely. I think in that, that's another area where that I have a lot of interest in at some point down the road in, in looking at because, um, you know, and, and, I, and I'm, I will premise this by saying that I am I'm pretty anti-behavioral as far as working with children who are autistic is concerned. And so I come from that that viewpoint of behaviors that autistic children have are of struggles that they are experiencing that they might not be able to verbalize. 
and and they're not aberrant. They're just different than the ones that we might see in a quote unquote neurotypical child. But I come from that because exactly because of my experiences prior to having my own children and because of having a master's degree in in speech language pathology, which does a lot of, um, you know, we, we spend a lot of time talking about in school, especially because mine's in the master's of science, we do a lot of neurology and talking about how the brain is wired. And I have that kind of understanding that exactly, I know not everyone has. And I think that when you get that bomb dropped on you of a diagnosis, I think that can be terrifying in a lot of ways and not knowing where to turn. And when there's a, a one size fits all approach that is that is being offered, of course, that's where you're going to yeah, that's where you're going to turn to. That just makes sense. A lot of this is just shifting the whole paradigm about how we talk about autism and how how vocal we as parents are who are supporting our autistic children and then how much we also try to raise the voices of actually autistic individuals. And in listening to what has worked for them. And and again, my voices, I, of course, not just ones that use words to communicate, but ones that use other forms of alternative art, meditative communication to communicate. It's so important that we, we remember that those people exist as well. <laughs> so children that use AAC grow into adults that use AAC. And we need to be respecting their voices as well. And so, yeah, we do a disservice by not talking about it, by not being open about it. And so that's a large part of it too. My my children, my son really identifies with being autistic. It's something that he understands, that he knows is a difference in the way that he thinks about things. And he's sometimes able to really pinpoint, oh, well, you know, this is the reason that I thought that this was happening and this is why I reacted in that way. And then we're able to work through those things. He understands it's not something that he can use it as an excuse, but he can use it to inform others about why he might be doing something a certain way. And I think that's going to be something that as he gets older is only going to help him more. He'll be able to really discover his own strengths and build upon those as well as voice those things that that he knows are a challenge for him and be able to find alternatives which is something that I think that we allow for most adults. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we allow for adults to really have those choices and to say, hey, I'm not really great. At, yeah, I have terrible handwriting. I personally have terrible handwriting. I just feel like, yeah, I'd rather type everything. We allow for that. And so um, I think those same accommodations should be made for children and for them to have the autonomy to be able to ask for those. And so that's something that's really important. But again, I say that being completely aware of the privilege that I come from in, in having the experiences that I've had that really inform my way of thinking. Yeah, I really latched on completely to what you said there. And that's why that's why I do what I do. Absolutely. <laughs> Obvious that you're so passionate about this. Can you tell us your vision for true autism acceptance? Yeah, obviously, the first one would be moving from Autism Awareness Month to Autism Acceptance Month. <laughs> that would be really great. I'm seeing it out there and it's happening. I'd like to see more. I'd like to see the end of all sorts of couching terms like war on autism or the battle with autism. And I, while I, again, empathize and see why that would, why the, that language exists. I wish that we could, we would have said 
build off of the strengths and also be a little bit more honest about the challenges, seeing the challenges as differences and that those differences, again, as I talked about before, can be accommodated for. I'd really like to see that acceptance throughout throughout the school, throughout work settings. Or we've seen recently a lot with LinkedIn's put on put out quite a few articles lately about autistic acceptance within the workplace and how to how to accommodate your autistic workers, which is excellent. We need to see more of that. We need to see more of those autistic workers actually voicing some of those and being like, hey, this is what's worked for me. I think that I think that my hope is that like the autism acceptance mo- movement follows. It, it gets a lot of its, it already draws from the LGBTQ movement, which also drew from the like black power movement, you know? So, um, I, so what we've seen, so what we saw with those two, right? So if we kind of look at like, like the LGBTQ, um, movement there, it moved from being this outside to then trying to work on at least people being aware that people who are LGBTQ exist and they exist every day and they have everyday lives and we need to at least accept that we at least see them for everyday people. And it moved from that to being like, okay, now they're going to be people that are more actively portrayed in the media, but a stereotypical maybe portrayal in the media, right? Because it needs to be loud, because it needs to be over the top, because it needs to be seen. And now we've moved from that to where you know, if we're kind of, again, talking about like the media aspect of it, where now there's the character being LGBTQ is just part of being the character. Isn't the whole character, isn't their whole being. It is just part of them. And I think that's where we need to move as far as like autistic acceptance is as well. There have been a couple of television shows and movies that have had autistic like characters or who are or have an autistic main character, but it's very stereotyped, right? Um, and so I think, again, moving to where then there's more visibility as it just being a part of who that person is, where they can comfortably accept that they are autistic, that other people can be aware of that's a way that they identify, but it's not the only thing that they identify with. And I think that we also need to just really push from our policies and practices, again, throughout schools and throughout the workplace that also also recognize the different needs of autistic individuals. Um, so, and just, yeah, I think that that's, I think, I think we're getting there and think we're moving, moving in that direction. Um, there are a lot of great organizations out there that have, that are now being led by all autistic board members, which is excellent. You know, and I, I think that the more of that, the better. I think that, you know, well, I'm really happy to be a voice while my children are young for, for, for them, um, to advocate for them. I, I look forward to the day where I can take a step back and let them begin that advocacy for themselves. Like I said, my, my 10 year old, he's already started to do that a bit, which is every time he does it, I'm not going to lie. I have this like immediate, super proud mom moment. Where I just, oh, I don't have to do anything. He's <laughs> so empowered, like getting to be so self-aware, know what he needs and communicating that. And yes. I love that. Yeah. This makes me think of a student I had a couple of years ago who had autism and he, I remember it was in third grade. So kids are not like super, super aware they're getting to that point. And I just remember he was very loud and he would definitely blurt out things a lot of the time in the room. And then you could tell would quickly be like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. I could see that on his face. And 
I just remember being so conflicted because part of me wanted to tell him, okay, you're using a really loud voice right now, but we're all working and I would want to help him. And then the other part of me was like, I was worried about him being socially accepted, was worried mm-hmm. for him and wanting to protect him and all of that. But then another part of me was like, man, I just wish the rest of the world would just adjust for him. Like, why does he have to be the one that's like change and figure out what's socially acceptable? And it's, man, why can't we just be more accepting of people that are like, okay, so he's a little loud. Okay, we'll move on. I don't know. I just wish. And the kids, and the more I think about it, I think more of it might have been me like worrying about yes. all of that. And those kids probably <laughs> had no clue. What was they probably didn't even notice. That's 100%. And I think you struck it right there. That's exactly right. So much of it is what we as adults view as neurotypical behavior, right? Whereas any variety of kids will go through these behaviors throughout the day in a classroom. Yes. Uh, and so, and they, they, like you said, they're probably, if they're aware of it, they're marginally aware of it. And as a teacher, and look, I certainly... I never thought it, but obviously being at, be, having worked in schools, I certainly understand and again, empathize with the need to kind of have like some order and <laughs> some things that just kind of, this yes. is the way we're going to do things. But I think the more that we can create a classroom of empathy and create a classroom of understanding and valuing differences in people, because that's really what it is. It, Throughout time, it's not the people that have just done the same thing and who just fall into line that have made changes. It's the people with differences. It's the people that looked at things differently. It was the the person that was too loud. It was the person that couldn't stop moving and had to kind of, you know, constantly be balancing themselves. Um, You know, it it was those people that that ended up making the changes. And so I think that if we as teachers and as parents, if we allow for that environment to really bloom, we'll, we will naturally create those spaces then. We will naturally create children who feel more confident in themselves, who are more accepting of others. And, um, and then the, the order and, you know, that those conversations of like, hey, there are times when you can't just be blurting out, you know, that's okay. Of course, that's for everyone, right? So yes. That's not just for the autistic child, that's for everybody. So kind of finding those balances, but then finding those times and like, hey, is it really a problem? Is it really, is it me or is it really causing a problem? You know, and I think sometimes as adults, again, that's why like I try to, I, this is like one of the things I always talk about because I also am really passionate about gentle parenting. It's one of the things that, that I do in particular as a military family. And and then a family of neurodivergent children, I found that gentle parenting is really one of the best things that you can be doing for your children as far as like creating homeostasis and for helping them feel supported in all the times of change because it's just constantly times of change. Um, And so, um, but one of the things I would talk about consistently with people who sit and listen (laughs) is that that I have to remind myself that I am the adult in this situation. I have the ability to control myself. I've worked, I've had the work, you know, I've put in the work. And if I haven't yet, then I need to, because it's not on my children to be continuously aware of themselves. It's not on my children to to be able to monitor themselves and to be able to control control themselves at all times. That's not on them. 
they're not there yet. They're not developmentally there yet. It's me as the adult who has to step out for a minute and go, okay, why is this happening? How can I help them? What, su- what extra supports do they need in this moment that I'm not giving them or they're not getting in their environment? And that's hard. Sometimes it's really hard. Sometimes you have to take, um, you kind of have to, you know, I even physically remove yourself. You know, they're, I'm not perfect. I have emotions. <laughs> I get mad. <laughs> Sometimes my children are very, you know, sometimes they're real busy and they've asked me 3,000 questions that day and I need a moment. And that's okay to say, hey guys, I need a moment and step out and go do that. But what's not okay is to take that out on them and punish them for something that is natural to who they are. Um, And so, yeah. And like I said, I think a lot of it, the reason even with gentle parenting too, is I really appreciate the idea of creating agency for children, because that's really what it is. You're building a foundation for them so then they can have their own agency as they get older and then understand that they are, and then begin to understand that they are in control of themselves as they get older, as, as they are developmentally appropriate, that I'm not in control of them. They are in control of themselves and their actions. And that's where a lot of that neurodiversity ties in, I think, for me, is building that. But you have to start from a place of understanding. You have to start from a place of trying to build supports first. You can't just start from like trying to... <laughs> yeah, That just doesn't work. Oh, hey there. Sorry to interrupt. Would just like to share one of our recent reviews that was left on Apple Podcast. User MomLFS said, great information and very easy to listen to. Thank you. Thank you so much for leaving us that review. If you would like to be featured on the podcast, your review, please feel free to submit one on Apple or wherever else you get your podcast. Every rating and review helps us to reach more and more people that are trying to advocate for the gifted loved ones in their lives. All right, let's get back to the show. Tell us about the learning differences and strengths associated with twice exceptional learners, specifically gifted students on the autism spectrum. Yeah. So, um, you know, with twice exceptional and, you know, I, I'm always a little bit like iffy about that term. If you, because again, because the connotation of it, obviously is just that, oh, exceptional. But mm-hmm. if you think about it, as far as like, it's an ex- it's it's both in the exceptional in the strengths and in the challenges. I think that makes that does kind of make a lot more sense if you remember that both are valid and that it's not just we're not just valuing you for your strengths. We're also valuing you for your challenges and the differences that you have as well. And so um that's one of the reasons that I that it's really important to me to use identity first language, particularly when we talk about twice exceptional students, because when we talk about giftedness and we say, oh, you are a gifted student. And so there's that positive connotation there. But then we say, oh, you, but you're also a student with autism or you're also a student on the spectrum. And there's that negative connotation, right? The, so the giftedness is part of you, but the on the spectrum or, on, or you have autism is not a part of you. Well, no, they're both part of you and they're both a valid part of you. And they influence you and they can influence you sometimes in, in different but equal ways. I think that it's really important to recognize both of those. If particularly if we're talking about autistic kids, some of the strengths that they might have, you know, autistic kids are really, really strong with pattern recognition quite often. They're the first ones to be able to 
you put something on the board, they're like, oh, I see it. <laughs> it's like, wait, hold on. <laughs> Let me get the question out first. You know what I mean? Yeah. Got the question out. You know, they're, they're really good at that. They're excellent in that if you want a kid, if you want a kid that's going to be able to into, entertain themselves on their own for hours on end, you want an autistic kid in your class. So because they get in that flow state of learning, they're, they're, they're good for the day. You know, you get them a couple of books in their interest area. Get fine. They're great. They can be on their own. They can really deep dive into it. And then they can relate full chunks of information regarding what they've, what, you know, what they've listened to or what they've learned. I'm, one of the things that I'm always surprised about is we listen to the Who Win Well podcast. And which if you guys haven't heard it before, it's really, it's, I highly recommend. And it's a history po- podcast where they take individuals throughout history and do kind of a short, like they're interviewing them and they tell them about their life story. And I'm always surprised to listen to it in the car. And I'm just genuinely, and I shouldn't be, but I'm just genuinely shocked every time when my son will just give like a whole, will tell essentially everything that he just heard three weeks ago about this one person. Because he is, he's it's in there. He's got that whole chunk. And he gets really fascinated by those things. And the same thing with my daughter, it's the same way. And so, yeah, those strengths of, of being able to deep dive into something, I think, is just really important to recognize. And I think that the challenges are things that we can, that are certainly there. One of the things having to do with executive functioning are obviously going to be challenges with autistic kids, but also for a lot of kids who are neurodivergent. So when that's ADHD, dyslexia, dyscalculia, that, that executive functioning tends to play a large part in that. So that's that organi- the ability to organize your thoughts, ability to some of that spatial recognition, spatial planning is really difficult. Again, though, sometimes this is where you need to pull in like an OT, right? So maybe, so maybe it's not necessarily that this child is having problems with spatial recognition. Maybe it's that they, if we're talking about writing, for instance, maybe it's that holding a pencil is really difficult for them. So typically in autistic kids, there is a little bit of hypotonia as far as with their hands. So fine motor skills might be a little bit more difficult. And so some of that inability to or not wanting to write, we see this a lot of in writing, obviously. So they might struggle to write. They might push back on writing. They don't want to write. Some of it might be more of an OT thing than necessarily an executive functioning thing. So this might be where you need to pull your OT in and go, hey, I need you to at least give me some suggestions on different grips or sometimes even just slanting the paper instead of being flat down, just creating a slant. So they're more comfortably able to hold their wrists. They're not having to flex that wrist constantly. So those are things that you have to consider as far as challenges are concerned. One of the things I think that is really, well, there's two, there's two, two as far as processing it are concerned when we talk about autistic kids who, whether they're twice exceptional or not. One is processing speed. Most kids who are autistic are going to have some blip in their processing speed. So a little, usually it's typically a little bit slower. And we do live in a society where we expect an answer pretty quickly. And with autistic kids, because the way that the brain is wired, sometimes that, that verbal communication can go in one ear and it bounces around. And instead of going to straight to the place where it would in a neurotypical brain, because the autistic brain is wired across both hemispheres, so that language bounces around and then they're trying to gather their thoughts. And in the meantime, the teacher's asking again, hey, I already asked you, what's the answer to five times three? 
And so now you kind of, you added more language in there. So it's bouncing around more. And in the meantime, what is one of the first things to shut down when we're experiencing frustration? Language. So they're not able to verbally <laughs> express it. Hey, hold on. I'm trying to come up with this. Or they're not able to verbally gather, gather the answer and provide an answer. Add any type of stress onto there. And you, you've, you've really just kind of made the problem even worse, right? So... Being mindful of that processing speed is so important in giving a child ask the question one time and just let it sit and marinate for a minute. Sometimes it's going to be really important because they, if, especially if a child is in like a flow state where they're really involved, you might even have to physically enter their space, gently physically enter their space to let them know that you're going to ask them a question because it might not, it might have gone over their head that you were even asking a question, right? So just making sure that you're kind of, as a teacher, being aware of those processing speed or parent too, for sure, as a parent, <laughs> being aware of that processing speed is going to make a huge difference. The other thing is in that sensory processing. Like I said before, one of the big things that I'm really, that I really focus on is creating homeostasis. So a body is not going to learn if it's not in homeostasis. So for autistic children, and sometimes with AD, you can see this also comes with ADHD kids as well. They tend to, some kids want more pressure, harder pressure that they need to make their body feel like it's comfortable in space. Sometimes they need to be moving around. There might be something on their shirts. Thank goodness that Target, I think, has the cat and jack line with tagless shirts. That has saved my life. <laughs> so, so sometimes it can be, I, you know, um, even certain like plastic chairs really bother if my son, if he has shorts on, plastic chairs will really bother the underside of his legs. And that's all he can focus on now is that that's because he's really there. The inability to shut out some sensory information is so um, overwhelming that they can't get their body into a state where they feel comfortable or feel safe. And so um, being aware of that um, and kind of meeting those needs. And this, the hard part is, of course, again, sometimes these kids are not really aware of that. They're not really able to tell you. So you might have to, as the adult, do a little bit of detective work. Hey, no, again, for both of my children, they often forget to eat. It's just something that is just something that I have to always be aware of. And so one of them will start being a little bit cranky. You're having trouble moving from one thing to another. That's not normally a problem. And then it's, hey, have you had a snack recently? And they're like, oh, no, I haven't eaten since morning. And it's three o'clock in the afternoon. I'm like, okay, <laughs> let's let's make sure that let's go get some food. We need to go do that. I think that, again, as adults, we all get hangry. We've all experienced that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I think we're a little bit, we're adults, so we're a little more aware of it. We're a little bit more uh, accepting and accommodating of that. But children deserve that same amount of, accommodate, of accommodation, particularly, again, like our autistic kids who just feel it to the nth degree more than we do need to have that those accommodations ready um and and they shouldn't they shouldn't have to do something to get those accommodations right like those should be offered to them and so yeah those are some things i think like i said as far as challenges go they're there they're definitely there absolutely but we can do a lot to mitigate those for our kids do you have an academically talented child who's looking for a challenging and exciting summer program? Summer Institute for the Gifted provides innovative academic programs for exceptional students from all over the world. 
Enroll now at some of the top universities in the country, including UNC Chapel Hill, for courses like robotics, creative writing, and neuroscience. These courses are designed to engage and inspire your child, allowing them to grow into the next best version of themselves. To learn more and enroll, visit our website at giftedstudy.org. So I wanted to talk a little bit about how the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders continues to change the diagnostic criteria for autism spectrum disorder. And then there's not a universal term for the word gifted or giftedness for kids. So there's a lot of different just moving elements. And I feel like that can lead to a lot of confusion for parents, kids, educators, everyone really involved. Just was curious on your thoughts on that. Um, yeah, so yes, the, it does constantly change both of those. I think that you could see it as you could see it as a negative in that that does definitely make things um uh it, it can be hard to find like a starting point, right? It can hard it could be hard to say this is what you need to do then, or this person is gifted, or this is why this is happening, right? So certainly that can be frustrating. But I think if instead we look at it as the human existence is constantly changing, and as we are more aware of different cultures, different, you know, we're, we're, we're just, just still on the tip of mining what the brain can do, you know, and really understanding what is happening in the brain. And so I expect that these definitions are going to continue to change for a while. And so I think that my my personal recommendation then is to, again, the onus as adults is to trust the child, right? So trust what you're seeing. If you're seeing that a child is bored, okay, what as an adult, what does that say? Are we going to, you know, yes, you could say, okay, well, this child is bored because, and so they're, because they're a problem, problem child, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, so um, we need to give them other work to do that's going to so then then they won't get bored and then they'll they'll take their time next time on the stuff that that they're supposed to be doing. Or we can say, okay, this child is bored. What am, what as the adult do am I not doing to engage them more? Or what options do I need to give them to to maybe get their brain more in, engaged in a different way than what maybe they're typical what's typical this i think what we're going to just move away from and then it's not to say that there's not always going to be something that's typical i think that there is always going to be there is always going to be your a starting place i guess but i think what we're going to see is we're going to see more people kind of realize um that oh like i do have some differences and those are really okay and if we can accept our own differences then we can move towards accepting others and I think that's going to be, I think that's going to be a way to look at it is that those changes in definitions allow us to create more room for everyone, <laughs> for everyone's voices. And then we can build on that. I'm almost thinking like if the definitions don't change, then we've stopped our research and that's not good. I never want that to end. I, we need definitions to change and grow with the time and grow with everything that we're learning about. Yes. And adults. We also always refer to a lot in this podcast. I catch us like saying 
gifted kids and and like they turn into gifted adults yes and we said someone one of our guests have said that and it really stuck with me and I think the same thing is for kiddos and adults with autism look I did that thing that identity first language I literally just did it we talked about it earlier I didn't even realize yeah I went to I got my master's degree in 2007 I graduated so I'm still certainly right in that time when we were still pushing person-first language, how important that was. And I think it was well-intentioned. I am always going to defer to whatever the person prefers, right? So if they are a person who prefers to say, I'm a person with autism, that is how I identify. Cool. No problem. I think that when we use identity-first language, though, it, when we can, when we start working on that and training ourselves to just change that mind frame and just see it as not a negative, right? And see it as a part of the whole person, which is okay. It's really okay. <laughs> it's okay to be autistic. It's okay to be an ADHD. These are not inherently bad things in the least. They create challenges, but the challenges are there because of a system that has not been built to accommodate these people. It's not because of the people themselves. I think that it is, it's hard to change your mind frame in that way. But when you do, you start seeing a world of opportunity and a world in which we can really encourage our children to grow into the adults that are healthy and happy and feel accepted in this world. That's ultimately my goal for my children is I want them to see themselves for their for the whole person that they are. And and I this is say, like I said, the same with gifted. I'm a formerly gifted child. <laughs> like I, I went to a separate gifted school. Like I, I've been there and I I still geek out about things, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> get me talking about certain things that I will happily quantifically hours, but my husband's the same way. He will happily talk at you about chat GPT right now. If you give him, if you give him the time, that's still a part of me, but it's still, so is being someone with, I have generalized anxiety disorder. That's something that I've had since a child. It's a part of me. I've learned to manage it in different ways and I've learned to manage it in a more healthy way now as an adult. But I wish that I had the support as a child and growing up into an adolescent to to be more accepting of this is this the way that my brain is wired and what made what would that have done throughout my time then growing up? Yeah, I feel like I've turned out okay, <laughs> but you know you kind of like well, it, you, you can't help but sometimes play a little bit of the what if game. What if I had just had a little bit tweak here? Would I have been able to skip some of the harder times and? Obviously, I don't really want that for myself because I wouldn't be the person I am if I didn't go through those. But I want that for my children. So I think that's the world that I envision, I think, overall. So many things that you've been saying throughout this time we've been talking, I've been going back to just my classroom. And I've been going back to students that I've had over the years and I'm thinking about what I could have done better for them. So what are some like tips that you would have for educators who are teaching those twice exceptional learners in their classrooms? What are some things that they could do to help those kids and give them the best learning experience? 
Yeah. I, so I think that you do have to play a bit of the detective. I think and that is going to be a part of it. Um, you kind of, you know, and sometimes, you know, occasionally these, these kids are, are not super great at being self-aware, but sometimes they really are. And if you just take a minute to pull them aside and engage with them. And I, again, I know the busy, a busy school timeline, that's not always possible, but even if it's just once a week, to give them that extra little bit of attention and kind of ask some questions and build upon what little pieces of interest you get from them, that can really make a huge difference. I think that, again, building a classroom where you're aware of some of the sensory issues that some kids that who are twice exceptional might have, built keeping lights low or dim if you can, not having a lot of noises or sound sometimes just playing some very quiet music in the background just really helps giving having corners where a kid if they just need to go get headphones that they can just go get headphones and that again this can be even starting in kindergarten i think that when we teach kids to respect those things from an early moment they tend to take care of them when it becomes a part of you have access to these you have to be able to put them away you've got to clean them afterwards and kids really enjoy having that they said that autonomy to be like, okay, I need this right now. So I'm going to go get it and I'm going to take care of it afterwards. I'm also going to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to advocate for my profession. Reach out to your SLP. <laughs> I guarantee you, your SLP has something in their closet, in their work closet, because <laughs> that's what we work in, in the closet. <laughs> they have something in their work closet that will help you, that will help you out. And because we just, we really do work in that, that realm of again, that, those accommodations and support realm. And SLPs are really good at that. They're also really good at, re- at reading They're, and reading people. So bring them in, have them just check out that kid. Hey, I don't really need them for an assessment necessarily, but can you just you know, give me a read on them? what do you think is maybe making them tick? Sometimes having that extra set of eyes just is really helpful. And oh, hey, I noticed that the whole time they're wiggling around in their chair. Let's take a look at the OT and see if they have any wiggle chairs we can borrow for a little bit. Paying attention to that. So again, OT, pull the OT in there as well, right? Have a, I have a entire box of different fidgets that my kids can use. And this box of fidgets was my same box of fidgets that I had when I was an SLP working in the schools. And so I would just sprinkle them in classrooms quite often. And would say, hey, if your kid needs it, as long as they're not using it to... as it use, make sure that it has very direct instruction about how it can be used safely. And <laughs> these are the really important things, again, to set up at the very beginning before they even have access to it. But as long as they know what the reg- rules and regulations are for using them, most kids are going to be able to use them correctly and responsibly. Obviously, there's always going to be children where you're going to have to backtrack and be like, okay, nope, this is not the way. <laughs> They're flinging those things across the room at other kids. So that might not be what it is that we're going to do. We're going to try, but don't give up. Don't let that be the conclusion. So again, you're, you as the adult, it's, it is up to you to help that kid figure out what it is. Okay, that wasn't it. Let's figure out, let's work together. Do you like looking into, sorry, this is off track here. So there's a lot of information out there right now about proprioception and interoception. So proprioception is knowing where your body is in space. It's a lot of those, if you see those kids that constantly are bumping into other kids or they're real close to other kids, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily that they're trying to 
we tend to view that as a behavior of they're not respecting people's space, but it actually might be something where they're just, they just need more of that contact for their body to be able to know where they are. So maybe those kids, hey, do you like to have squeezy texture? Like to feel something squeezy and they just need like a wristband, something as small as like having those sweatbands that we used to, those Mm -hmm. 80s, that just might help them ground themselves a little bit more. Hey, do you want to have your shoes off when you're in the classroom so you can feel the ground and feel comfortable? Okay, let's do that. Giving them those instead of being like, hey, bubble, right? And again, I get it. I get that sometimes we just need that bubble. But if it's consistently happening and this kid is not reacting in the way that, that you're expected to when you remind them of the bubble, then maybe it's something else. Maybe they're just really having a tough time figuring out where that body needs to be. And we need to give them another way to help them. Introception is that sixth sense about knowing. It's like knowing if you're hungry, knowing you need to go to the bathroom, knowing if you're tired, knowing if you're anxious, those sort of things. And those are, it's another way that these kids have, as I talked about before, that feeling of hunger. They might just completely ignore that. It's also feelings of pain, which sometimes can be elevated. Some kinds of hypo can experience hypo and hypersensitivities for interoception. So looking into that, out of Australia, actually, the whole, like the government of Australia, if you want to look to the place that's doing neurodiversity, right? It's Australia, like for sure. But they have, they've put out an entire booklet about how to work with on proprioception and interoception. And so it gives a lot of ideas about like how to help a child who can't really figure out that they're hungry or can't figure out that they need to go to the bathroom or can't figure out that what those signs of anxiety feel like. So like they're heart racing and then all of a sudden they're like, okay, why is my heart racing? I need to get up. That's why my heart's racing because it's time to move. (laughs) So teaching them, oh, you feel your heart racing? Okay, let's think, let's look at our thoughts right now. So what are your thoughts about happening? And those are all just different ways that as again, I know, and I know as a teacher, you have such limited time and so much is already asked of you. But if even you can just do one of those things, right? If you can just pull out one trick out of your bag, it will make such a difference. And the last thing is to always, of course, like as much as you can communicate with parents, even as a, even as somebody, again, who has my background, I get, I have times where I have a lot of anxiety and a lot of worry about how my kids are perceived in public spaces. As a homeschooling parent, we actually, so my son does climbing, my daughter does karate. We get together with some other homeschool families quite often. They do art and art class outside of the school or outside of the home. They have lots of chances to interact with other kids and to be around. And sometimes that's where you can really notice some of the things that they do struggle with, some of their challenges. And I get really anxious about it. And I know. So some parents aren't have, don't have anyone to have that conversation with about, gosh, I just wish that my kid would do this or why does it have to be so hard? And sometimes just having a teacher go, hey, I noticed that Billy is really struggling sitting still. I would like to try this with them. What do you think about that? And just having someone kind of bring that up, broach that subject can really be helpful. And it might even open up the eyes of the parent at home and be like, oh, I hadn't noticed that. But I did notice that when we're at home, you know, or Billy loves to sit in his car seat. He loves his car seat. Most kids hate the car seat. He loves it. I wonder if it's that feeling of being really secure and really having that that response. And you can have those aha moments. 
And you're going to have, obviously, again, you're going to have some parents that are not open to that yet because they're still experiencing a lot of hurt or need some healing. But sometimes just those little things can really make a huge difference. They can go a long way. And they're such great strategies. And you mentioned something and I can just see people, like people, teachers, educators feeling overwhelmed, like they have a lot on their plate. But I feel like the things that you're talking about, like you're going to get so much bang for your buck, like that's going to help that child so much, but it's also going to help you not have to, I don't want to say have to like stop during the day, but that's something, there's all these things we got to get done. And, but if you take time and do what this kid needs or figure out what strategy works for them, then you and them are going to have a much smoother day. Absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. Just, like, yeah, I mean, it is. It's a lot. You can either see it as mitigating behaviors. You can go at it that way, or you can see it as a supporting a need, which way sounds to me when sounds nicer is supporting a need, right? Mm-hmm. But that's the way, that's the way my typical route of going about things. You've talked a lot about what educators can do, and I feel like a lot of those can be also be applied to what maybe parents can do as well. Is there anything else that you would like to add as far as advice for parents? Yeah, advice for parents. I I want to just say that, one, work on yourself. That's going to be a big thing. And I don't mean that in a judgment way. I mean it with all the empathy and love that I can have for any parent out there. We need work. <laughs> and it might not, maybe that's not seeing a therapist because you don't have time for a therapist. No problem. I get it. Maybe. but. Maybe it's finding a book or finding a group of people. Maybe it's reaching out to that one other parent that you saw that was picking up their kids and maybe reaching out to them. But maybe it's just taking a minute to reflect upon what are some things that frustrate me about the way that things are going right now? And what's one thing that I can maybe tackle and work on to create a more positive and supportive environment at home? Then I also want to say, like, please treat yourself with grace and kindness because you as the parent deserve that and if you give yourself grace and kindness it's going to come out to your children as well and they are going to emulate what you yourself are doing um and so you know we're not none of us are perfect (laughs) no matter how much i've read about autism no matter how much i've read about giftedness or difficulties challenges all of that i still have days where i can feel my frustration level hit pretty high, especially right now when I'm not on coffee. Uh, so <laughs> that's yeah. definitely a little, gets it a lot faster than it usually does. But I try to, at the end of the day, just see that I, and recognize that I'm doing my best, that, um, that my children experience the day of being loved, experience the day of being valued, and that they are building on them. We're building on that to make a greater thing. So even if we just had a day that was a that was not our best day, it's not going to be a major setback that we can continue to build towards something greater and better. And we're going to do that because my children are going to grow to be autistic adults. There's no question in that. They're going to grow to be a gifted adults. And and I want to see that be beautiful for them. I want to see them make that beautiful for others. That, that they come into experience as they get older. Yeah, I think that's it. Parents, I see you. I hear you. <laughs> I'm here for you. If parents or educators wanted to get in contact with you about anything we discussed on the podcast today, what would be the best way to reach you? 
Yeah, I'm absolutely always happy to be a support. So my email address is k-a-t-y.davis.slp at gmail.com. And you're welcome to email me anytime. And I will throw all the resources at you that you probably could ever want. (laughs) So yeah, absolutely. I'm always happy to help. And the last thing that we want to talk about is this divide that the term giftedness causes. Sometimes this term can lead to misconceptions and it can even prevent students from being identified because they don't check those preconceived boxes. Would you agree that term giftedness or gifted is problematic? And if so, would you rename it? Yeah, I think that definitely I I like viewing it from Gardner's multiple intelligence theory instead which looks at basically that there, that you can have strengths in different, across different ways of thinking, whether that's more mathematical thinking, spatial reasoning, that you could have musical intelligence. I think that's really something more that I would lean towards than just pure giftedness. And because I think too, when we just looked at just the word gifted and how we've treated that, we don't always, again, we tend to look at it as kids and we don't look at it as adults, right? It's really great that you're gifted as a child and that you're really good at doing the schoolwork that's presented to you and that we build that mind and we let it grow. But then what? (laughs) And if instead we look at it as like different intelligences and that we can be, we can have strengths in kind of these different areas and let's kind of mold those and let's plant those seeds and watch them grow then I think you can do a lot more with that. And I think it's also something that's a little bit more, like you said, it's more inclusive of more people. We can see you're going to definitely bring more people in with that. If you recognize that intelligence isn't just an IQ test, that was norm, not a whole bunch of white guys from World War II. So, <laughs> right? I mean, I know we've changed those. We've updated them since then. But, but I think that's, I think that sometimes we focus too much on that. And it's not to say that's not valid too. Those kids are clearly gifted. They clearly have intelligence, but like we need to see it from other viewpoints. And so, yeah, I, I really, I love Gardner's multiple intelligence theory. That would be my way of looking at it. Love that. That's such a, I love that ending with that question because we always get such different answers. Oh, I bet. (laughs) That's definitely a really cool perspective. I love that. Thank you so much, Katie. This has been truly a beautiful conversation. And I feel like I've learned a lot and just have a lot of things that I'm excited to to take off and use in my classroom. And I just want to thank you so much for giving us your time. And there you have it. Thank you for listening. And we really hope you enjoyed this episode of They'll Be Fine. We would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. If you're a fan of our podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review. And if that feels like too much, we get it. Instead, just take a few seconds to give us a five-star rating or share this episode on your own social media. Every like and share counts and helps us to reach families and educators who are trying to navigate and advocate for the gifted loved ones in their lives. We'll see you in two weeks when we interview another amazing stakeholder in the gifted community.